I want to talk about law this morning, uh, specifically as it relates to uh, love. Um, and we'll get into more of that in a moment. Um, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. Um, read whatever you like. It won't compromise the integrity of the sermon at all. Uh, if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he... Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, uh, we give thanks to you today for your precious word to us. May you bring us your truth. Amen. I want to begin with a quote. Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. End quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. On December 1st, 1926, Mary Clark Brenner was born to a very wealthy family in Beverly Hills. She spent the majority of her life living in the decadence and luxury akin to that of movie stars, many of which were her neighbors. Yet even so, she began to tire of conventional extravagance. She longed for something more. Her soul ached within her, and it was a pleading that ultimately led her to Christ somewhere in her late 50s. As the last of her children grew up, she began to spend more and more of her time in charity work, caring for the needs of the poor. One specific occasion 
brought her to deliver medical supplies to the infirmary at La Mesa Penitentiary in Tijuana, Mexico. The experience of the prison and its deplorable conditions moved her. She began to visit more and more frequently, caring for the needs of both the prisoners and the guards that lived there and addressing the deplorable conditions in which they lived. In 1977, when her last child had grown, she made a permanent move to the prison, willingly choosing to live inside a 10 by 10 foot cell of her own. Having been divorced twice, she could not actually affiliate with any minister. And she would spend her days walking the halls, caring and embracing the prisoners in her care. She affectionately would call them mijios, my sons, kissing their hands as she walked by and encountering each of them. And they would kiss her hand back. Many of the prisoners and the guards actually came to faith through her love. They gave her the name Madre Antonia in honor of the dignity she provided them. But as such, she soon became known by a much more affectionate title, Mama. Madre Antonia became the primary catalyst of the reformation of the Mexican penitentiary system to this day. Before Christ, God provided through, for his people through the law. Now, law on its own merits is a very good thing. It provides security for many people who would otherwise have none. It helps provide justice for those who have been wronged. It helps punish the crimes of the wicked, and it helps lead them down a path of righteousness. In fact, the law was paramount to the safety and security of the people of Israel. Modern law serves for us today in a similar vein. In fact, the system of justice that we have is designed to bring reform through justice. The word penitentiary is used almost synonymously with the word prison because the prison system was designed to teach penitence. Penitence being the act of feeling sorrow You see, when the law works as it's intended to, it brings us liberty. It brings us freedom. But the harsh reality of a fallen world is that the law, too, becomes fallen. And it does not provide us the liberty that it intends to. The Israelites made this first clear to God himself. You see, after constant disobedience, God would issue judgment. Their disregard for the law would lead God to punish them justly. Yet after penitence, after repentance was displayed by his people, after they turned back to God, he would restore them. In fact, the entirety of the Old Testament is this process over and over and over again. Disobedience, judgment, 
repentance, restoration. It doesn't seem like the law was working. Likewise, Mother Antonia, Mama, recognized the same flaws in the justice system of our age. What was designed to lead people to repentance simply stripped away their dignity, fostered the deplorable conditions of La Mesa Penitentiary and so many more. In fact, our system, the American system, is no different. In the first five years after release, 77% of all offenders return to prison. Three out of four. These realities sadly bring us to the all-too-accurate conclusion that law does not work. It never has, and it never will. And that is the truth that we bring to the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. The standard for understanding this story takes on a pseudo-sheep-in-wolves clothing appearance. We encounter two holy men, this priest and this Levite, who seem all unto willing to help the dying soul before them. And we think, how could they not help? Where was their mercy? Surely the priest and the Levite made the wrong choice. And then we encounter the Samaritan. To the pure-blooded Israelites of the tribe of Judah, the Samaritan people were wholly inferior. They were Jews who had intermarried with the Assyrians of the north. And to the Samaritan people, however, they believed themselves to be just as Jewish as their fully-blooded kin. They followed the same laws. They believed in the same God. Yet in most Jewish circles, the Samaritans were not to be trusted. And so when we encounter the Samaritan, whom we're supposed to then deplore, he is the one of all who has mercy on this dying man. And so the consensus of the story is that the Samaritan did what was right, not what is easy. And we think that that must be the picture Christ was painting for us here. But I believe there's something deeper. There's something culturally deeper from this passage that we can gain We lack a key ingredient that's necessary to see the gravity of Christ's lesson to this man. Let's begin reading at verse 25 once more. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it. Let's stop here for a brief moment. We tend to glaze over these verses merely as an introduction. I tend to do this in every passage I read. Yet I think there's critical understanding to be found even in these introductory lines. In the midst of Christ's teaching, we're interrupted by none other than a lawyer. This is a man much akin to what a Pharisee would be in the day, except that his job was to interpret the law for civil issues instead of spiritual ones. Here is a man 
who should know the Jewish law inside and out, backwards and forwards. There should be no question in his mind about what the law instructs. And it's for that reason that we can conclude when he questions Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It is not a question he needs to ask. The lawyer is not seeking an answer to something he doesn't know. But rather attempting to find fault in Christ's own interpretation of the law. And yet Jesus is all too aware of the lawyer's intentions. And therefore, instead of answering the lawyer's question directly, he seeks to have the lawyer answer the question himself by saying, what is written in the law? How do you read it? It's the second part of Christ's question that I find of particular interest. How do you read it? I find that peculiar because the only reason Jesus would need to ask that question is if there was more than one way. And in fact, in the tribe of Israel, there was. You see, in that time, there had developed two very distinct schools of thought in interpreting the Jewish law, the Torah. The first school of thought was known as the school of Hillel. They interpreted the law very figuratively. Every word, every phrase was shrouded in hidden meaning. There was a deeper underlying message beneath everything. The second was known as the school of Shammai. Shammai believed in a very literal interpretation of the law. Every law, every creed, every commandment, every word was to be taken at face value and followed to the letter with no deviation whatsoever. And considering these two vastly different approaches, you could gain multiple different conclusions based on the same passage. And so it's clear why Christ felt the need to clarify how this lawyer interpreted the Jewish law. Keep that in the back of your minds as we continue reading verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's pause again briefly. At this point in the conversation, Christ has successfully subverted the lawyer's first desire to catch him off guard. However, another issue now arises. Highly indicative of a literal interpretation of the law. This lawyer understands the law literally. That's why he responds with the literal quote from the commandments. And Christ seems to affirm that, saying, you've answered correctly. Do these things and you will live. Yet the scripture tells us that the lawyer is unsatisfied. 
He's seeking to justify himself, asking Christ to clarify, who is my neighbor? Perhaps in the lawyer's defense, it does make sense that someone of a literal interpretation of the law would like to clarify the boundaries of the term neighbor. Surely neighbor doesn't apply to everyone, especially not those Samaritans. So who is it specifically that I must love Jesus? From this lawyer's understanding, this could be a genuine question. Yet on the other hand, he could be asking this solely to feel comfortable in his action of not loving those around him. Like the Samaritans, for instance. It's at this point that Christ responds with the all-too-famous parable. Let's continue reading verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. <coughs> Excuse me. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and when whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Let's begin with the road. I hope you don't depict for yourself the, the paved and lined majesty of a throughway you drive on every morning to get to work. This was little more than a footpath three, four feet in diameter at most. Just enough space for a cart, perhaps a donkey laden with possessions to pass through, or at best two men to walk abreast. So when this man on his journey to Jericho is assaulted, robbed, and left for dead, there's absolutely no possible way for his body to be overlooked. There is no space available. And it's at that time that the first traveler approaches. It's a priest, a holy man of the Hebrew people. Surely he would be the one to help this man, right? He sees the body lying there, pauses for a moment, thinks to himself, and then without any more hesitation, skirts around it and continues on his way. Why are we not shocked, appalled? How could a priest of all people do this? Surely a normal person would help this man. The answer, I believe, lies in the Torah, the Jewish law, the first five books of the Bible, and in this priest's own interpretation of the law. If you would turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 19. The book of Numbers, 
one of the books of the Jewish law, specifically chapter 19, talks about the laws of purification. Verse 11 reads, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Are you beginning to see? It's not a coincidence that Christ's description of this man is as half dead. He's close enough to death that we refer to him in his relation to death rather than life now. He has more of a risk of dying than surviving. Of the two interpretations of the Jewish law, it appears that the priest has a literal understanding. This priest walks past this man without a second thought because according to the law, it was the right thing to do. And now our second traveler approaches this man, a Levite. The Levites were the portion of the tribe of Israel dedicated to the priesthood. Yet this Levite does the same thing as the priest before him. He looks at this man, pauses for a moment, and then steps by on the other side, continues on his way. This Levite also seems to have a literal interpretation of the law. He looks at the body, thinks to himself, what should I do? Oh, Numbers 19.11, I cannot touch him. It will make me unclean. So he obeys the law and continues onward, feeling fully justified. He has done what is right in the eyes of God. And finally comes the third traveler. A Samaritan, a man who was not considered a Jew to the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah, but who himself considers himself as much a Jew as anyone. He encounters this man and he is moved with compassion. He binds his wounds. He carries him to to safety and he pays for the innkeeper to take care of him. What interpretation do you think the Samaritan people had of the Jewish law? Literal or figurative? Samaria was taught also in the school of Shammai. The Samaritans had a literal interpretation of the Jewish law. You see, the power of this parable doesn't lie in a Samaritan who would help this man while a priest and a Levite of all people would not. It doesn't lie in the compassion of the unlikely. The power is that the Samaritan knows to touch this man would make him unclean, would violate the law. But he does it anyway. Let's finish reading verse 36.
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. On October 31st, 1994, the night of Halloween, a group of prisoners from La Mesa Penitentiary got a hold of the guards' guns and took them hostage. A full-scale riot broke out. Some parts of the prison were even set on fire. Amidst the smoke, gunfire, and screams, a 68-year-old, 5'2", Mother Antonia walked through the halls in her habit. The warden had told her to escape to seek shelter, but she disregarded him without a second thought. As the prisoners saw her just walking, they began to stop rioting. One man followed her, then another. She called down every hallway in her normal quiet voice, Mijios my sons, and her sons began to follow. And when she had reached the prisoners that were holding the guards hostage, she called also to them. My sons, she said, give me the weapons right now. God is watching. God is with us. And we are going to help you. The prisoner who was leading the riot, who had taken the guards hostage to begin with, came up to her and said, Mama, as soon as we heard your voice, we threw the guns out the window. Mother Antonia negotiated a truce between the guards and the prisoners, ensuring that the prisoners would not be punished. In her own words, she said, I am hard on crime, but not on persons. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. Mary, Mother Antonia Mama Brenner, died five years ago on October 17, 2013. The warden of La Mesa Penitentiary said, there is no other way to describe her. She is a saint. Law doesn't work. It never has. It never will. But love does. Mercy does. God's law could not redeem his people from their sin. It was only the love and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, that could do that. La Mesa Penitentiary could not help the prisoners in their care, but Madre Antonia could. You see, law is external flowing inward. It places limitations, constrictions on the soul that in a fallen world no one can abide by. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Love is internal, flowing outward. It frees the soul. And what becomes limiting 
becomes liberating. Why would I kill him? I love my brother. Why would I steal from her? I love my sister. Why would I covet my brother and sister's things? I have the blessing of the love of Christ Jesus. What more could I want? Considering first priorities, our first priority is to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. But our next priority is to love everyone in the same way. We're all aware of the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. It comes out of this passage of that commandment, love your neighbor. Christ actually establishes a higher rule, a platinum rule, so to speak, which he calls his people to live by. The book of John, chapter 15, verse 12, Christ commands this to us. A new commandment I give to you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your mercy, your love for us. You knew that law could not save us from ourselves. And so you sent us your son instead. You loved us enough to save us. We give thanks to you today for your great mercy, your grace, that very love. Amen.